welcome back to the Forces of Modern Law podcast. I'm Miri Stickland, a knowledge development lawyer in the commercial real estate team. And if you were listening to part one of our podcast on common issues with urban developments, uh, you'll already know I'm joined today for part two by Catherine Eakers, who's a partner in our commercial real estate team. And alongside Catherine is Matt Evans, who is a senior associate in the planning team. So last time in part one, we discussed strategies for getting vacant possession of our redevelopment site. We talked about how to approach the process of gaining planning consent and uh, including those pesky Section 106 and SIL obligations. So turning back to you, Catherine, we've talked about how in London, alongside regular SIL, uh, we also have the added bonus of paying mayoral SIL. Are there any other particular complications that you might envisage um, arising due to the location of our site? Well, I mean, I suppose the main thing about London is it's very crowded, as we all know, and that's not just the case above ground, it's below ground too. Um, We obviously have the London Underground with tube lines going in many different directions, um, so it's always relevant to work out what's underneath you on any scheme. Currently, Crossrail, um, in the same vein, is is quite an issue on developments. Um, Crossrail works have obviously been going on for several years already, and as we know, not not yet complete. Um, and they can they can be a real issue, particularly when the tunnel boring was happening. Um, I had several clients who had schemes where their works were delayed because they couldn't pile down whilst Crossrail tunnels were being bored beneath or near their buildings. Um, and once the crossrail tunnels are there, in the same way as London Underground tunnels, there are limits to what you can do um, in terms of works underground because you can't interfere with those existing tunnels. Yeah. Um, so it's obviously a very technical technical area and you need um, structural engineering advice, um, but working out what's beneath you and all around is really relevant in considering how high you can go up. Um, because otherwise you're building in a very non-technical way would topple over. <laughs> and, yeah, that, we that, don't want that to happen. No, do not. absolutely <laughs> not. And I think yeah, that 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 is now that's sort of the reality on the ground at the moment. But that then you've got now got the the safeguarding areas as part of Crossrail Two coming forward on the Chelsea to Hackney line, which we've come across a few times where it's a similar sort of concept where you can't just assume that you're going to be able to build exactly what you want and where you want. You know, if you do fall within those safeguarding zones, Crossrail get Crossrail have to be consulted as part of the application. It does mean it does impact on you know, what are you going to be able to build there in terms of piling, construction, foundations, everything. And presumably, because you've got to consult with them, that also might impact upon your timing and your delivery. Potentially, yes. I mean, they they do have time time frames for responding. Statutory consultees should respond in a in a certain time frame, but as we all know, that's not always the case. Yeah. Uh, but yes, it's another factor to to build in. I mean, those those safeguarding areas are quite a wide area, um, but so you may not. You may get a fairly simple response if you're on the fringes, but if you're in the middle of it all, yeah, it's another factor that is, is not helpful. Yeah. Well, let's say that we have got planning. We've managed Woo. to. <laughs> Finally. <laughs> um, and let's assume we've got our construction package all in place and the funding for our development in place. Can we just crack on? Catherine, what would sort of spring to your mind? Well, I mean, I'd love to say, yeah, get that spade in the ground, but unfortunately, uh, that reality is that it's not quite that simple. Um, so you've got planning, great, but that doesn't, planning doesn't resolve what I would call private rights or third party rights. So planning deals with the public planning consent to the scheme. 
if individual properties nearby have got rights over your land, and we'll touch on what those could be in a second, um, the planning consent doesn't squash those or remove those. You still need to resolve those with the individuals concerned. And now in London, um, rights to light is probably one of the most common third-party rights that can really impede a development. So right to light um, is a very, very ancient right for a property to receive a certain amount of light through its windows. Um, now, that is a very exciting and interesting topic all in itself, <laughs> uh, which we sadly can't do justice to today. But um, essentially, it's not a right to a view. It's a right to a certain amount of light measured in lumens. Um, it's, it's different to daylight sunlight, which is analysis that you have to do as part of your planning process, um, which looks at the impact of daylight and sunlight on residential properties in the area. Um, but surveyors who do daylight sunlight assessments will often also be specialists in looking at the impact from a right to light perspective. And really the, the main thing to, to bear in mind is just that right to, rights to light can be a real issue on a London development because there are often so many properties nearby. And so you'll need to get a rights to light surveyor to look at your scheme once you know what you want to build. They'll assess, they'll model the impact of that on neighbouring buildings. And if there are major impacts from a right to light perspective, then you your lawyer will then look at the legal documents, work out if those properties do actually have the benefit of a right to light. At the end of all that, it, it, whether or not that's an issue depends on the severity of any light losses and the number of properties that are affected. Um, sometimes you can get insurance, and that's something that's becoming increasingly common, particularly over the last few years. It's far more readily available than it used to be. Other times you need to negotiate a rights to light release with the neighbouring owners. That is at their discretion. They've got no obligation to give you that release. Um, some are very happy to do so in return for financial compensation. Yeah. Others are outraged at the prospect of yet another building site happening on their doorstep and will say, no, I, I have no interest in receiving some money from you. Um, so that can take time. It can also be quite expensive if people deliberately sort of protract the negotiation process in order to make as much money as they can. Um, so that's just something that is really important to actually find out at a really early stage, um, even if you decide not to go in to have any negotiations until you've got planning, um, you want to know up front what the likely costs and likely time delays could be. The same is then true of other third-party rights. Um, there might be rights of way, so you've got a little bit of open forecourt that you're wanting to, to build on. There might be rights of way that benefit neighbouring properties. There might be drainage easements that run through your site. Um, so it's, it's really important to work out at a very early stage what rights your land might be subject to and if that might interfere with your development. If you're buying the property for development, then your lawyer would flag any rights that might impede it at that point. If you've owned your property for a while, um, it, it would be worth having sort of fresh title check um, once you know what your development looks like. Because when you bought it, if you weren't thinking of developing, then that wouldn't have been at the forefront of your mind or your legal team's mind. So once you do know what your scheme looks like, um, it's really good to have a sense check at the start because it can often be a lot quicker, easier um, and cheaper to redesign around rights, um, say drains, for example, and even rights to light. You know, sometimes a f kind of window here or there or an angle back in your scheme can make a massive impact. Yeah. Um, so it can be much more cost effective. If you know about those issues at an early stage, you can design your scheme to avoid impacting them. And um, Matt, on the planning side of things... Um, Anything you want to add? 
Um, pre-commencement conditions, really, they're the big one. Um, it's it's a common uh, question that we get asked about, particularly about preserving uh, planning permissions when they come to the end of their lifespan, which is usually three years, but the planning authority have the ability to impose any uh, length of time they want, particularly for larger schemes. But it's about you can't make a lawful start on site without those being discharged. So you will often see, but not necessarily advised by me, uh, people making a start in, before those things are those conditions are discharged, um, and that you can rectify that, and that's some of the advice that we give to people about protecting and preserving the value of their permission. But ultimately, you should not be making a start on site until those things are discharged, because if you don't do that, and then you get to the end of your three-year time period, you're putting the whole consent at risk. Uh, yes, there are legal arguments to get yourself out of that, um, but you know, if you're getting to the end of your three-year time period and you're having a legal case law-based argument with the planning officer about whether you've made a lawful development, you're in a pretty bad place. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting for us and it genuinely is fascinating, but it's not the way to preserve the value of your consent. And ultimately, if you've got getting people on board, investors, whoever, you know, how will I know that this is actually... Uh, a, a legitimate consent does it still have the value that it does um, so it, it's absolutely crucial that those, those things are sorted and what are some sort of typical pre-commencement conditions that you might have to deal with uh, it's usually to do with what the, the what anything that is crucial to how the thing will look uh, and behave uh, when you when you've built, when you are building it when you're going through the phase of building so the most common one for example is uh, uh, details of facades, how it will look, right. uh, fenestrations, that kind of thing. That is, what, what about the foundations, construction management plans? How are you going to build it? How is it going to look that are so crucial before you come out of the ground? Yeah. I think one of the conversations we have most frequently is about landscape management plans. You know, do you really need to know what the gardens and what the plants are going to look like 18 months down the line? Probably not, but planning authorities often stick those in as pre-commencement conditions because that's what they've always done. Right. Um, there's been a rec- relatively recent change to the law that says you know, that requires local planning authorities to agree pre-commencement conditions up front, which I think is designed to maybe maybe make them have a th- bit more of a think about what they're actually requiring developers to do up front. And, and that's having an effect, but ultimately... If you don't have those crucial details about what it is going to look like, it's it's very hard to move away from a pre-commencement condition. So it's A, to be prepared for those those conditions to be on there, uh, and B, get ready to discharge the ASAP. So I have noticed a telecoms mask on the roof uh, that I think I'm just going to take down. Is that a good idea? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Wouldn't that be great? (laughs) Unfortunately, um, the government is really fond of telecoms masks um, on the basis of trying to get everybody to be within a certain radius of masks so that we can all be on our mobile phones and fully contactable at all times, (laughs) Um, we have the wonderful benefits of the Digital Economy Act 2017, which gives um, electronic communications operators um, quite wide-ranging rights and prevents landowners from interfering with those rights. Um, The key thing to bear in mind, really, is that if the operator of your mast is protected under the code and there is a list on the Ofcom website of all operators who are protected so you can check quite easily if they are protected then they've got rights under the telecommunications code and you can't just get rid of them 
even if they have no contractual right to be there because they're there on the lease that expired 15 or 20 years ago, yeah. they've got the protection of the code and you need to comply with the code in order to get rid of them. And there's quite long uh, notice times Absolutely. under the code, aren't there? Yeah, so the first stage is a sort of is an 18-month notice, um, and that's the absolute minimum. And that says, look, we want to redevelop and we want you to go in 18 months' time. Um, it then is it's a little bit similar to the... T- getting out, get you, getting your tenant out when they've got security of tenure process. The code operator can serve a counter notice, um, which starts a court procedure, and at the end of the that eighteen months, there's then a court hearing uh, at which you have to do you have to prove that you need the telecoms operator to relocate in order for your redevelopment. Um, and if you can, if you can demonstrate that, then you will be able to get possession. But, again, you need to make sure that you have all of your ducks in a row in terms of showing exactly what your scheme's going to look like and exactly why you can't do Accommodate. it with that yeah. code operator staying in place. Um, to be honest, code operators generally, they, they're not deliberately obstructive. Um, they want to make sure that they can continue conserving their network, but they are open to looking for alternative sites and they are willing to engage with landlords who do their best to find them alternative sites. Okay. So whilst that official code procedure is going on on the one hand, um, what's best to do is to engage with directly with the code operator um, and find out what their needs are in terms of the site, look for alternatives in the immediate vicinity. If you own, you might be that you can accommodate them elsewhere on your scheme, for example. It might be that there's somewhere else nearby, another building that they can go to. I really work with them to try and understand what they need um, and how best how best to relocate them. Um, and that's the way that you're likely to get them to move as quickly as possible. So we are ready to go on site. And although uh, we have the room to accommodate the footprint of an, a crane, uh, the jib... Uh, technical term for you there, uh, <laughs> is swinging out over the neighbouring property. Um, so what do we need to do in that regard? Well, so, um, interesting, or not, fact, you own your land uh, <laughs> and you own the airspace above your land up to, all the way up to the sky, um, moon, ad, ad infinitum. Um, and so does next door. So you can't just swing your crane jib out over someone else's airspace because that's trespass on their airspace. And, you know, you might say on the one hand, well, why do they care? Well, actually, you would care probably if someone had a heavy crane sailing over your building um, because you'd be worried it might fall or drop something on your building. So people do care and it's something that people take very seriously if there are cranes in the vicinity and they want to make sure they're being managed properly and safely. Um, The way to deal with that is to go speak to the owner of the neighbouring property and agree a crane over sailing licence with them. Um, Generally, people are... Whilst that's at the discretion of the owner of that property, people generally are happy to accommodate that. Uh, most people are realistic about the fact that developments do happen, they're a fact of life, you need cranes, um, and those cranes generally can't be accommodated within the width of a building site, particularly in central London. Um, you'll need to pay compensation for that, and surveyors can advise on what's an appropriate amount. You'll need to work out how many weeks you need that crane for, because the licence will be for a certain period of time. And it will have restrictions such as you making sure that the crane is safe and secure, it's operated in accordance with all you know, relevant statutes, health and safety compliant, it's, um, you've got all the right insurances to make sure nobody gets hurt. 
Um, so there'll be all of those, all of those things will be in the license, um, making sure that you act in a proper way. Um, I would say make not underestimating how long you need the crane for is pretty key. Um, I've had sites where I was on a Friday, Friday at seven o'clock in the evening, desperately chasing down the solicitors, acting for an adjoining owner because we'd underestimated how many weeks we needed the crane for, and um, oh, and the license, and the license was about to expire. <laughs> Um, and you're in a much weaker negotiating position at that point, so our weekly license fee tripled, um, oh which which wasn't very pleasant for for my client. Um, whereas had we had an extra three weeks on the license from the start, that probably wouldn't have been the case. So being realistic about those timeframes and anticipating possible delays, building delays is 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 key. Yeah. So overestimate. Always overestimate, <laughs> definitely, <laughs> particularly in winter. So. Um, I guess in that vein, to sum up, what would that be your key takeaway or have you got some other key <laughs> pearls of wisdom you'd like to share? Um, well, I feel like I've been doing quite a lot of talking, so I'm going to let Matt dip in <laughs> with his pearls and then I'll, I'll add mine on top. Right, where do I start? I mean, fundamentally, the planning system is not Club Tropicana. It is incredibly difficult and there is a reason for that because developing and particularly in central London there are so many issues to resolve and so many parties and moving parts that to expect to get planning permission for something that is large less controversial in even 13 weeks is is unrealistic uh, and I think there needs to be an acceptance probably across the board that it, it is not as simple and straightforward as people think it might be or should be um, I think from my experience it's about getting uh, a good team together across the board in terms not just us or, or uh, architects or landscape architects or anybody or it is about getting the right people in the right place but not just that it's about making sure that you're very clear on when you want those people to be involved because otherwise costs can spiral out of control I mean costs can increase anyway for, for any number of reasons but if you're very clear about what people are up to and when that can be it can make the process much more pleasant and much more smooth than than normally would be the case. So, you know, for example, it could be useful to get us involved in terms at the start to check application boundaries to make sure there's no ransom strips or you're not in, inadvertently trying to build on the highway. Yeah. Um, but do you need us to review a landscape proposal? Probably not. So, and you know, we work for as much as you know. As much as, love, as much as I'd love, yeah, as much as I'd love to have a look at what flowers are coming on forward. Then, but <laughs> equally, that my input is not valuable there. Um, but we work for a, a particularly good developer in East London who is very, very good at doing that, and very good at making sure that they negotiate heads of terms, perhaps. But then, once that's clear, we're then involved and we're told to crack on, uh, and it means everything gets done in a pretty good, timely, and costly fashion. Catherine, anything to add? Well, I would definitely echo Matt's comments about the importance of getting assembling your team. Um, and I think communication is absolutely key there because everybody, all the different professionals involved, have really valuable things to input. And not talking means that things get missed or overlooked because if the architects and the lawyers don't talk to each other, we will both miss things. The lawyers won't be aware that the scheme design has changed and that that now impacts upon you know, a certain right of way that we'd advised about at the start, which was why the, a corner of the scheme had been left open, for example. Yeah. Um, so it's really important that everyone is put in touch with each other and everyone understands the overall design and what, what, what the aim is. Because unless you do know that, if you're working in a silo and only being asked specific questions, 
then it's really difficult to actually anticipate what's what's going to happen and what might be an issue. So having everybody involved and giving their input is is really vital. And I think the other thing is just to plan ahead. And you know, the a, a development is a really complex process and it takes a number of years, involves lots of different people and it's very expensive. It can also be very, very rewarding, um, both financially and just in terms of satisfaction. You know, you're 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 building something, you're making something and you're helping the area um, improve. So it's a great thing to be involved in, um, but it's challenging along the way. And the most challenging thing are issues cropping up that were unanticipated and unexpected. That will always happen because things change and evolve and you can't anticipate everything. Yeah. But trying to anticipate as much as you can along the way is essential. And so planning ahead is, is how you do that. Thank you both so much for joining me today. I think we've covered an awful lot of ground in relatively sort of short space of time, but in reality we've probably only really scratched the surface of the complexities that can be involved in putting forward an urban development scheme. And if any listeners want to put a face to Catherine and Matt's dulcet <laughs> tones, uh, do head over to our website where you can view their headshots and profiles. Wow. <laughs> yes, wow. Forsters.co.uk or do feel free to follow us on uh, Twitter, Instagram, LinkedIn or Facebook for the latest news and views from the firm. And until next time, goodbye. Forster's More Than Law podcast is for general information only and should not be considered to be professional advice. Forster's LLP accepts no liability or responsibility for any direct or consequential loss arising from the use of, reliance on or reference to this podcast. Forster's LLP makes no warranty or representation as to the accuracy of the information contained in this podcast. The More Than Law podcast and all copyright in it is the property of Forster's LLP and it should not be used, reproduced or quoted, whether in whole or part, without Forster's LLP's prior written consent.